Good morning. As I tell my Chinese congregation up in Boulder, which is good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm so happy to be here with you today. I love this church. I've known Pastor Chris for seven years now, ever since he moved here to Colorado Springs, but my connections with Vista Grande go a long way back to your prior worship youth pastor, Bill, Kathy Cox. Um, I've known them since they came to Colorado Springs, which was in the early to mid-1980s. We actually started serving at the same time. He started serving here, and I started serving at Garden Ranch at that time. So I'm so happy that you've given your pastor a sabbatical. That's uh, a much-needed break, but not just a break. It's, I know that he's going to put it to good use as well. So this morning, I am going to speak to you from Psalms chapter 63, uh, a thirst for God, uh, the joy and intimacy with God. So I'd like to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. Uh, Psalms chapter 63, verses 1 through 11. O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon You in the sanctuary, beholding Your power and glory. Because Your steadfast love is better than life, my lips shall praise You. So I will bless You as long as I live. In Your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise You with joyful lips. When I remember You upon my bed and meditate on You in the night watches, for You have been my help, and in the shadow of Your wings will I sing for joy. My soul clings to You Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by Him shall exult. For the mouth of liars will be stopped." Would you bow with me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we come before You today to thank You so much for this opportunity to come here to do the main thing, which is to worship You, to adore You, to glorify You, King of kings and Lord of lords. Today, Lord, I pray for us as we continue through the ministry of the Word that we would focus on You that Your Spirit would illuminate our hearts to the meaning of the Word, and that we would go out here to live it out in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Joy and intimacy with God. I want to speak to you this morning on a passion for God. We live in a spiritual wasteland today, which is kind of ironic considering the fact that At this time, we have more spiritual resources and tools available to us than any time in history. We're talking books and magazines, periodicals. We're talking online resources, websites, um, podcasts, the radio, the television. 
We have all these resources. In our country, we are saturated with religion. But it's kind of ironic that in the midst of all of this, we live in a spiritual wasteland where people aren't interested in God. They are interested in what they want to do, to do what they want to pursue. So the last couple of years, we've faced a lot of challenges. I would call this time a time of chaos. With COVID, the economy, conflict, count, cancel culture, and you would think in the midst of all of this that people would turn to God. Well, this psalm speaks to an intimate relationship with God, a passion for God. I want to make a distinction between passion and emotion. First of all, our worship of God is not based upon emotions, but then on the other hand, it doesn't mean it has to be devoid of emotions, okay? It's okay to be emotional when we worship. My goodness, we should be. We're doing the greatest thing that we could do, the worship of the personal, infinite God. If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what would. So what is passion? Passion, the way I'm going to define it, is not just an emotional reaction to our situation, but it's a deep and abiding love for God and a desire to know God, which I believe is what is expressed in this psalm. And by the way, not only in this psalm, but many of the psalms, as we know, including the one that we read just a little earlier this morning in Psalms chapter 73. So we're going to get into the specifics of this psalm. This psalm was written on the occasion of David fleeing into the wilderness of Judah during the rebellion of Absalom. Now we know there was another period of his life where he was on the run for his life earlier in his life when he was running from Saul. But I believe this is probably later in his life, even though we can't define that for sure. Just because of the last three verses, David speaks of the king, and as he often does in the Psalms, he does so in the third person. And so we're going to look at the first two verses now. The emptiness of existence leads to an all-out search for God. Verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read them again. Oh God, You are my God. Earnestly will I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon You in the sanctuary, beholding Your power and glory. I love the opening verse here. Oh God, You are my God. It reminds me of a song I used to listen to back in the 90s by Rich Mullins. And Rich, of course, is with the Lord now. He died in a car accident. But it was a song that just displayed what this psalm is trying to teach. Oh God, You are my God. This is the greatest um, conviction. The greatest conviction. David understood that he belonged to God and that God belonged to him. Can you say that today in your life? Now he goes on to talk about this thirst. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is the deepest longing that we can face. I'm using superlatives this morning. So, you know, there's good, better, and best, and, and big, and greater, and greatest. So looking at verse number two, he says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. I think that he was probably speaking to being out at night as he thought about these, this poem, because we know the, that David didn't build the, the sanctuary, the temple, 
but his son Solomon did. So I can imagine him out at night looking up at the heavens and, and, and seeing God's power and glory. Maybe not in a literal way, seeing God in the flesh, but through nature, the spiritual eyes that he had to see God. This is the grandest view, or we could say the Vista Grande. So the name of our church, Vista Grande, expresses what? Well, the area that that the church exists for sure, or at least used to when it was a little further east there on on, uh, Flint Ridge, but it also expresses our view of God. He is the grandest view, the most beautiful being that we could ever hope to look upon. Even though I'm not speaking, of course, in a literal way here. So David speaks of being thirsty and being in the wilderness. I'm going to show you a picture now of the wilderness of Judah. This is what the wilderness of Judah looks like. It's close to the Dead Sea, which is below sea level. So we know that it's very hot there. It soars well over 100 degrees on a normal basis. It's dry. It's parched. There's no water. So David was on the run for his life, and he was out here in the wilderness, and he expresses that his need for God was even greater than his need for water. Can you imagine having the longing, the desire to know God more than your desire for water? Have you ever been thirsty before? Well, of course you have. We've all been thirsty many times in our lives. I remember when I was younger, I went to the Grand Canyon with some friends and we were on the South Rim and there's a couple of trails that go down there from around the visitor center there. One is called the Kaibab and it's a seven mile descent to the bottom and then the Bright Angel, which is a nine mile descent. So we decided to hike down there and being young and not experienced, I didn't take into account the need for water. I don't know what I was thinking. Maybe I thought there was going to be like a come and go station down there by the river and I could just buy a big drink when I got down there. Well, you know, if you know about the environment of the Grand Canyon, that the rim is 7,200 feet right there at the visitor center. And down at the Colorado River, it's 5,000 feet lower, 2,200 feet. So often it can be cool or cold or even have snow on the rim. And down at the bottom, it's more like a desert. So my, I and my inexperience just went, took off without any water on this 16 mile round trip down to the bottom. Got down there, which wasn't really a problem. It was all downhill, right? But then I had to go all the way back up and dream about water, think about water uh, to quench my parched throat. And when I got back to the visitor center at the top, guess what the first thing was that I did? found a drinking fountain. And I just guzzled water until I drank that drinking fountain dry because I recognized my need for water. This is a universal uh, need we all have. But today, does your need for God exceed your need for food or for drink? Or for anything else for that matter? Do you have a thirst for God? is what I'm asking us to answer for ourselves today. I'm not talking about just going to church, going through the motions, coming and singing some songs. But when you come to church, do you expect an encounter with the personal, purposeful, all-powerful God who created the universe?
We fill our lives with many things today. We have many toys in life, many amusements, many pastimes. We have, of course, the internet. We have the pursuit of money and material things. We have entertainment galore. We have everything that any society in the past could ever hope for and more. A hundred years ago, people probably didn't have even a concept of what is available at our fingertips now to satiate our desires in life. But none of these things are sufficient. None of these things are greater than a personal relationship with the infinite God. Do you have a thirst for God in your life today? Let's move on to the next verses, verses 3-5. through Satisfaction of finding God leads to joyful adoration. So David thirsts for God, but then he encounters God and he worships God. Verse number 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. This is the loveliest song. I love those songs that we just sang this morning that express our love for God, the beauty of worship. Now, can you imagine that David was worshiping an energy field or a force or, or something else out there that sometimes people call God? He was worshiping the personal God so he could, he could give God his adoration. So if, if you believe that you are God, say you believe that everything is God and I'm God and you're, you're God, do you sing to yourself? Like, I'm so great, I'm so wonderful. What do you do in a situation like that? David was worshiping the personal infinite God, the most lovely song. Verse four, so I will bless you as I live. And that was under question at the time, wasn't it? David was on the run for his life. He didn't know if he would make it. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Okay, it's okay for us as Baptists to lift our hands when we praise God, okay? It's scriptural. David did it. We don't do it to put on a show, right? Not to impress other people, but if it comes from your heart, it's a part of worship, and it's okay to do that. Verse 5, David says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. This is the greatest satisfaction. David found in his worship of God, in his encounter with God of worshiping the personal infinite God who he could sing to with his lips, he could raise his hands to, and also from his heart he could worship. He found this satisfaction that could not be found in anything else in life. This morning, um, it's all about a relationship with God. It's not about religion. It's not about going through the motions. It's about a personal relationship with God. Personal relationships are important, aren't they? My wife, Jan, and I, we've had the opportunity, as Jay mentioned, to go on the other side of the world many times. And we've seen some wonderful things. We got to climb the Great Wall. We got to go see the terracotta soldiers. We got to go to Guilin, where there's those beautiful green mountains with the flowing river. Wonderful things. But our favorite place in China is called Joy in the Journey Camp. And it's not called Joy in the Journey because the accommodations are that great, okay? <laughs> in fact, it used to be a pig farm and a cheese factory. They converted the pig sties into dorm rooms, 
it's not bad. It's really not bad. In the cheese factory, into classrooms, in the kitchen. But we go there. Why do we go there? Why is it so incredible? It's not like, you know, basking on a beach, but it's about the relationships. So this next picture that I have for you is a picture of the camp team from 2018, Joy in the Journey Camp. So Jan and I are there kind of in the middle. I have the white shirt on. Jan's just below me in the red. And the camp team is composed of camp staff, also college students that are volunteers, and some of us foreign teachers that are mixed among the group. So we go there because we have this incredible relationship and we share the Lord and we work together to teach kids English. It's about the relationship. And so, you know, a relationship with God, it's not about scoring points, getting higher up on the ladder. And as important as it is, yes, it is about eternity, but it's not just about eternity. It's about who you spend eternity with. It's about this personal, infinite God. So I would ask you this morning, how's your worship quotient today? Do you worship God from your heart? You know, it's wonderful to see fans at a game. Sometimes if you go to a game, it's fun just to sit back and watch the reaction of the fans, isn't it? Because people get excited. I've seen the most stoic people most of the time. They're just stoic. They don't smile. They never raise their voice. They get to a game, maybe a football game, a basketball game, And they are a fan. They go crazy. They'll shout. They'll yell. They'll stand up. And what do we do in worship? It's like drudgery. We just come and go through the motions. Folks, we are worshiping the God of creation. Our our worship isn't based on emotion. It's based on His character, who He is, that He does exist, and He's personal, and we can respond to Him. But that doesn't mean that it should be emotional-less. We should worship God with passion in our lives. Okay, let's get to point number three. Knowing God leads to a closer or intimate walk with God. Verses six through eight. David said in verse six, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the night watches. Well, he was on the run for his life, him and his group, And they had to set a watch, of course. They had took turns through the night because they were on the run for their lives. They had to guard the camp. So this is the deepest contemplation. David is laying there at night on the run for his life. And what's he thinking about? He's thinking about God. The deepest contemplation we could ever endeavor is to think about God. I mean, God is great. God is glorious. God is above and beyond our conception. He is the God of eternity. David meditated on Him. And part of of worship is meditating on God. Thinking about God in our daily lives. Then he uses this beautiful picture in verse 7. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. So it's the image of a bird protecting her chicks under her wings. And that's how David felt about God. He clinged to God. Now you and I have all seen new mothers with their young baby, maybe a a baby that's a few months old. And you know, a stranger will come into the room and want to hold the baby. And you know, the, the baby clings to that mom if the baby doesn't want to go to the stranger, right? She'll grab the mom's hair, her clothes, just hold on for dear life. And that's the image David is painting here. He's clinging to God. 
God is His hope. God is His love. And God is His safest protection. Because God is like a mother bird who protects her chicks under her wings. So his soul follows close after David and and God's right hand upholds him. This is the most unfailing support. So in our lives, we understand that God is great and God is good. And I want to talk a little bit about theology now. We've kind of worked it into the sermon as we've gone up to this point. But I want to talk about the fact that God is a being who possesses personhood. Okay? David speaks to God through this psalm as one speaks to a friend. Not this psalm alone. We could go to many psalms to cite this. David speaks to God in a personal way, like God was actually there listening to him. God attributes, David attributes to God qualities in this psalm like loving kindness, which only a personal being could possess. You know, today, in today's world, a lot of people say, well, I believe in God. Well, what does that exactly mean when they say God? What do they believe in? Is it like an energy field, a wavelength, uh, the force? What is God? Well, according to the Bible, God has natural attributes or incommutable attributes, things like omniscience. He knows everything. Omnipresence. He's everywhere at one time. He... Um, is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's transcendent. He's above and beyond everything. He's immutable. He does not change. But the Bible also speaks to God's personal qualities, that He is a God who possesses personhood. He speaks, and He can be spoken to and understand it. So it's no wonder that we, as human beings, are personal, because we can also respond to God. Why is that? because we are created in the image of God. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, on the side of God's infinity, we are not. Only God is infinite and all-powerful in all those other qualities that He possesses. But on the side of God's personhood, we are somewhat, because we are created in His image. So the, the different aspects of personhood we could speak to are self-consciousness, self-awareness, an awareness, consciousness of one's own existence. Volition, the ability to make choices. Intelligence, the ability to reason. Creativity, the ability to make something new and different. Relational ability, the ability to communicate, to speak, and listen and relate to others. That's true of God even outside of the human race. God created us, but before God created us, before He created the universe, the Trinity already existed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Jesus speaks in John chapter 17, before the world began, He had a relationship with God. They loved each other. There was love. It existed among the three members of the Trinity before the beginning of the world. So the fact that we are, are, have the ability to do these things that God does is based upon the fact that He created us in His image. That's what it means to be a personal being. And that's what God is. And so when we worship, when we have a relationship to God, when we grow closer to God, it's possible because of who God is and who He created us to be, to worship and adore Him. God is great. We can see that through observing our universe. You know, about 20 years, more than 20 years ago, 
the Hubble telescope was launched, the space telescope. And, uh, you know, over the years, it's taken a lot of pictures, images. Um, it's coming to the end of its life, and they've launched a new telescope called the James Webb, which is one of the greatest engineering feats in history. The way this telescope was made, the way it was deployed, the fact that it has to operate at a very, very cold temperature below 7 Kelvin or 447 degrees minus Fahrenheit. It's, it's amazing. But the Hubble was amazing too. And so this picture you're seeing is about 20 years old. It's, it's a common picture. And it shows a little patch of space that is one twenty-fourth millionth of our uh, observable universe. Little tiny patch. What you're looking at, except for a few stars in the foreground, are actually not stars, they're galaxies. Our universe is vast. God created our entire universe, which is incredible, amazing. His creativity, His power, His ability to create something so intricate, so also rational, the way that the universe works according to predictable laws is truly fascinating. But something even more fascinating, I think for me personally, is the fact that even though God created all of that, He's still interested in us down here on this tiny rock that rotates around the sun. He loves us. He cares about us. He wants to have a relationship with us. This is incredible. You know, it's not just the Old Testament that speaks to this concept of comparing water and thirst to a relationship with God. You know, it does it in several places in the Old Testament, including Isaiah 55, for example. Uh, Come those that thirst and buy buy food and, and wine. But we think, of course, of the New Testament because Jesus encountered the woman at the well, the Samaritan. And as their discussion progressed, they got into the spiritual discussion. And Jesus promised that if, he, if she believed in him, out of her would flow rivers of living water, a fountain of life. And then just a couple chapters later in chapter number 6, John verse 35, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And he promises those who believe in him that they'll never hunger and they'll never thirst. To have a relationship with God, we must go through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living water. And he promised us who are thirsty that he could fulfill our need if we believed in him. And so to to have this incredible relationship with God, it's not just a matter of going to discover God on your own. Like, let's go out and, and meditate on our own and let's you know, develop a religion or join some religion. There's plenty of religion in the world. But to have a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, which comes through what you know, the ABCs of salvation. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. A, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We try to fill our lives with many things, with the toys, and they don't work. B, believe. Believe that Jesus came into this world. God's holy son lived a sinless life. Was God come in the flesh? He was God, came down, became a man, and he died on the cross. 
And just like we celebrated last week on Easter, he rose from the dead. And see, confess Jesus. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Jesus Christ. To have a relationship with God is to have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, the eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus, whom God sent. That's eternal life. It's interesting that Jesus defines eternal life as a relationship, isn't it? To know God, and when he uses the word know, he's not talking about head knowledge. As John does all throughout his gospel, he's talking about the relationship. To know God is to know Jesus Christ, who he sent. The Jesus who died for you and me. So today I would ask you, do you have that personal relationship with Jesus? Do you know who Jesus is? Or do you know Jesus? There's many people in the world that say, would say, oh, I know who Jesus is. He's the character from Christianity, lived 2,000 years ago, lived a good life. Christians worship Jesus, something like that. They do some strange thing inside of those churches. I don't know what it is. But I'm asking you today, do you know Jesus in a personal way? So how should we live in light of the personhood of God that, Jesus, that, that David speaks of in Psalm 63? Number one, walk with God. Daily walk with God through prayer, meditation, and the Word. It's not just about coming here one hour on Sunday morning, but it's about a daily lifestyle. The Bible often uses the word walk to describe that. It's a walk with God. To, to moment by moment experience God in our lives. Number two, worship God. Adore Him for who He is. Offer yourself to Him. That's the essence of worship as we're taught in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It's, it's about offering yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We worship God on a daily basis as we give Him our lives and as we commune with Him throughout our days. Does that describe your worship today? Also be aware of what God's doing in the world around us. We've gone through the chaos, COVID, economy, conflict, cancel culture. But we as believers, we see that in the worst of times, our God is working. He's working in the world right now. <coughs> That's always been the case. And nothing's changed in the last two years. Number four, work. Take action. Get involved in what God is doing around you. It's so important. Now, David closes the psalm, verses 9-11, through 11, and he says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. In this case, specifically, it was Absalom, his son. It's going to be buried in the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals, the wild dogs. But the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouth of liars shall be stopped. David closes this psalm in triumph. He's out in the wilderness on the run for his life, but he's still triumphant. Just like we can be today. No matter what we're facing, the difficulties, we can be triumphant. He usually in the Psalms, he'll often, not all the time, but call himself by the third person, but the king shall rejoice in God. And the mouth of liars will be stopped. Of course, his son Absalom had been fostering a revolt for some time, sitting at the gate of Jerusalem, telling lies about David. So David in the midst of this, was triumphant. 
And so can we be in our lives. Do you know God today? Do you seek God? Are you thirsty for God? I'd like to close this morning with an illustration about uh, from history. I like to study history. One of the greatest rivers in the world is the Amazon River. For many reasons, the biodiversity of the Amazon River Basin is incredible. But it's also just a massive river. Here's a, a photograph of it. Every second, the Amazon River discharges 209,000 cubic meters of water. That's a lot of water. To kind of make a comparison, you could take the next seven biggest rivers in the world and they would not match the discharge of the Amazon River. That's a big river. It carries 20% of all the fresh water in the world. That's an incredible figure. Well, because of its massive discharge, it's, it's the water is expelled out. You can kind of see it by this map, 100 miles into the South Atlantic Ocean. So out there, you know, there's a lot of fresh water that's mixing, of course, with the seawater. So back in the early days when the Europeans were exploring the um, Atlantic, you know, we know that Columbus um, came over and misunderstood where he was, that it wasn't uh, uh, North America, South America, but it was, uh, that it was that. He, he thought it was India. Well, the Portuguese, they explored the South Atlantic. And of course, when they crossed over to the South Atlantic, they lost their navigation point, which is Polaris, the North Star. You can't see it anymore after you cross over the equator into the South Atlantic. So they explored down there. The first uh, man who actually went up the Amazon River was a Spanish conquistador uh, named Vincente Yanez Pinzon. And he nicknamed the river Mar Dulce, the Sweet Sea, because in the mouth of the Amazon, the water was drinkable. So we could imagine, this is a picture of a, a Portuguese ship of that era, what it looked like, a lot like uh, Columbus's ships, the Nina de Pinta and the Santa Maria. Uh, this was like that. You could imagine that those ships, as they were lost out at sea, they were not yet within sight of land. They, they were actually, had made a long voyage from Europe and, and probably were short on supplies, including water. That all they had to do is dip their buckets down into the ocean and they could have pulled up fresh drinking water. Might have had some bacteria and parasites in it, but nevertheless, it was fresh water. You, we know we can't drink ocean water. All, that's all they had to do if they knew to do that. And I think in our lives today, I mentioned at the beginning, we live in this spiritual wasteland where people are starving dying of thirst spiritually, trying to fill their lives with things that will not satisfy, will not satiate their, their thirst. And sometimes we as believers are the same way. I'm challenging you today, dip your bucket down into God, the God of the universe, the personal, infinite, all-powerful God. You can try anything you want. You can fill your life with entertainment, relationships, human relationships, success, degrees, money, influence, popularity, 
You can surf the internet. You can do, do it all. But I'm telling you today, there's nothing that will fill the hole in our lives permanently, completely, like a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to have our invitation song right now. So I want to just challenge you today. If If you have a need, if you don't know who Jesus is or you want to find out more about having a personal relationship with Jesus, I'll be in the back. One of our brother deacons will be back there as well. And we will be glad to share with you about how to have a relationship with Jesus. Not to judge you, because we're all on this journey together. Just to pray with you and to encourage you and to listen to your needs. So please come to the back during this song if, if you feel led to do that. For all of us, um, as we stand right now, I'd ask you to stand. And as we pray, consider your own relationship with Jesus Christ today. Where are you at? And where do you need to be?